Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies, and I'm your host, Alia Breininger. Our guest speaker today is Rebecca Gould, author of Raiders and Rebels, The Literature of Insurgency in the Caucasus, which was published by Yale University Press in 2016. Rebecca is currently a reader in Translation Studies and Comparative Literature at the University of Bristol, and today she will be talking about her pioneering work at the intersection of Slavic and Middle Eastern studies. It is my huge pleasure to be talking today to Rebecca Gould, who is the author of Writers and Rebels, The Literature of Insurgency in the Caucasus. Hello, Rebecca. Hello, Olga. How are you doing today? I'm great. So thank you for finding time to do this podcast interview. I'm really excited about it. And perhaps we could start by talking a little bit about your background, um, like scholarship, and what took you to the study of the literature of the Caucasus. Sure. Uh, and thank you so much for inviting me to this program. I um, would say that I, I began my life as a scholar or just as a, as a lover of literature um, with Dostoevsky, reading Dostoevsky uh, in translation when I was maybe 16, 17. And so naturally, uh, when I arrived at uh, Berkeley, um, I decided to major in Russian literature. And I spent a few years immersed in the Russian canon um, and really falling in love with, with the, these writers. Um, but this was also at the time when um, of one of the worst war, Chechen wars was taking place at the same time. And so I was really struck by the kind of um, dissonance between sort of the world that I was reading about in literature and the, the world that was occurring outside the classroom. And also struck by the fact that, you know, I did, there didn't seem to be much kind of curricular resources to, to give me guidance in terms of understanding this conflict. And so when I graduated, um, uh, my, received my undergraduate degree, one of the first things I did was um, book a, a round trip ticket to a place I had never visited, uh, which was the North, well, the North Caucasus. I actually took a train um, to Vladikavkaz and then traveled through Nalchik and um, Dagestan and even briefly into Chechnya um, under <laughs> under a, a big uh, jacket. So I was basically concealed from the police. But it was interesting. I stayed, stayed with the refugee family there. Um, and and that absolutely, I mean, that experience really opened my eyes in multiple ways. Uh, not just, I mean, I think at the most maybe superficial level, it opened my eyes to kind of another side of the conflict. But even in a, in a deeper, more, more um, uh, historical sense, um, it opened my eyes to a kind of diversity of um, literatures and languages and cultures um, of people who who had Russian as a lingua franca, but whose whose lives and traditions and histories and sense of identity um, were defined by something that was quite different from anything that could be encompassed in in the Russian language or the Russian tradition or anything in my undergraduate education. Um, And so I realized, like, this was a world that I had to be a part of. And so Russian was a kind of gateway to that. But I 
it wasn't enough, right? I wanted to immerse myself in these 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 traditions. Um, so I applied for a grant um, to the American Councils, and I ended up living in Tbilisi for two years. Um, officially, the goal was to study Chechen, but I ended up becoming immersed in Georgian. I uh, was very privileged to have a very, very intensive immersion language experience and actually translated um, a book while I was there that was published several years later, um, a, a book of Georgian um, fiction uh, by the writer Alexander Kazbegi. Um, and also during, when I was there, um, the, well, that was the period when I was really introduced to the literatures of the Caucasus. So maybe I'll stop there. <laughs> well, that's a very exciting start to the interview. So let's talk uh, more about your time in the Caucasus. Um, I read that there have been eight years of field work, which went into the book. Is this so? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. So could you <laughs> please tell, tell a little bit more or maybe much more about that? Sure. So, yes, it was an extraordinarily intense um, period where sort of just, I mean, I think once, well, you know, I came, I came to Tbilisi basically knowing Russian, not knowing any Georgian and or Chechen. Um, but somehow I think it was just because I was in this, like I had no other Um, nothing else to do other than immerse myself in the culture. So I, I ended up kind of becoming a part of my environment very quickly and learning Georgian really quickly as well. And I traveled around a lot to the Penkisi Gorge as well as to the North Caucasus. And every day, I just remember sort of every day I would wake up and feel like, you know, I was exploring things that no one had seen before, at least no one, no one back in the United States, uh, things that had not been documented by scholarship. Um, and it was the most interesting Well, I had so I had lots of conversations with, with local scholars and just sort of I mean, I was I was given the background of the Chechen wars. I was, of course, very interested in, in understanding how people related to Russian rule. Uh, but also, I think that not just in the contemporary moment, but historically, what, how do they see themselves historically in relationship to Russia? And so um, that was a kind of yeah question that I posed to everyone I met. And um, well, that that, that the, the answers to those questions Or became my book. So, I mean, I, I can tell you about those answers, but maybe I'll turn it to you. Or you can ask me. Well, um, uh, we'll I'll ask you many more questions about this. Okay. But since you already gave us a segue into your book, so, mm -hmm. so perhaps we could talk about what sure. the main themes of the book are and yeah. uh, maybe also about your conceptual framework, which seems to be very like pioneering and innovative. Thank you very much. Uh, yes. Okay. So now I'll get back to what the answers to, to my questions were. Uh, to the to very, I mean, people I, I spoke with from, I think, significantly for the book from many different social demographics. So professors, um, villagers in Pankisi Gorge, um, just a range of students and so on. And there is one um, uh, figure, or you could say like a term in a sense, or just a, a phenomenon that was kind of constantly reiterated when people remember the history of resistance to Russian rule. And that was the abrek, or the bandit, um, is, is one very imprecise and imperfect way of trans translating this term. And it is, of course, it is a Russian term, although many, many Russians may not know it, but it, it is a term that exists in the Russian language. Um, but it comes from the languages of the Caucasus. So um, every Caucasus language has their own version of, of this word. Um, and it's a sort of unifying, one of the many things that kind of unify the ethos of, of this culture. And it occurred again and again, people would talk about uh, brechistva and uh, banditry um, as a kind of way in which, um, as a response that was made to colonial rule. And also at the same time, I was immersing myself in um, major literary texts from, from Chechnya, from Georgia. Um, and this theme was occurring again and again and again. You have this, this bandit figure. 
And so I started to ask myself, you know, why, what is the history of this? Why is, is he, and it is always a he, why it's so popular? What is the, the appeal really of this figure? And um, so the more deeply I read, what I saw, it was very interesting to me, was that there is, this is not a, a colonial, uh, this, this phenomenon of the bandit does not begin with the colonial period. Um, pre-colonial, it, it goes back maybe to the, at least to the early modern period, 14th, 15th century. There are legal codexes in Arabic, uh, for example, that talk about banditry as a problem. Um, and there's folkloric sources as well. So that it would be completely inaccurate to say that this begins with colonial rule. But what's really important, and this is the big paradox for me, was that this figure, when when he appears in pre-colonial sources, he is vilified. And he is not um, a hero at all. This is someone who is to be punished because he violates social norms. And so there is no space for glorification. Um, and then slowly, especially with the late Zara's period, you have this figure, Zelim Han, uh, who is probably the most famous abrek. Um, and whenever reports are made of him, even in, in, in folkloric text ballads from this period, um, there's this sense of, of someone who is very bold and very courageous and who even has a kind of, um, I don't know if mystical might be going too far, but who has this kind of um, uncanny way of, of, of administering justice. Um, and so his violence against uh, the Russian officers is seen as inherently just. And the term is the same. You know, the, the, the genealogy of this figure is clearly in pre-colonial sources, but his signification is radically different. And, of course, um, uh, there's a kind of tension in my work, I think, between history and literature, because, because I mean, I, I do, you can definitely see this in, by reading through the, the um, uh, reports of the time, I mean, which, of course, are mostly, mostly Russian, but you see this sense of people, people sort of rallying around, Chechens rallying around these figures. Um, at the same time, I do think that literature played a very significant role in the aestheticization of this figure. Um, and so that, of course, means that it was a kind of, to some extent, it was a kind of elite uh, rewriting, um, in other words, uh, authors who um, came a generation later who sort of rewrote this history. Um, um, they, they were very much responsible for aestheticizing the violence of, of the epidemic. But, but, and, and, but then subsequently, those, those representations of that history um, have shaped how for example, Chechens understand um, their own history. Um, so I think that the, the interface between literature and history is very, very um, intense. Um, so that's basically the theme of the book. I mean, it's, 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 it's looking at literary texts that are um, engaging with the problem of, of anti-colonial resistance um, and that are kind of uniquely um, open to the possibility that violence has a purpose that can serve a just purpose. Now, you know, I, I, then I don't take any kind of position on it at all. I just think it's important to kind of register that as a, a fact of these literary histories, that that has been a theme. Um, and then there are equally a very large number of writers who contest that theme. But the point is just that it, it, it was an argument that was made and that had a kind of traction in these in these contexts. And the, 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 the trope through which that that argument was made was this bandit figure. Um, yeah, and I, I think, well, you know, again, what's really interesting to me is just the, 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 
number of languages and literatures that this occurs across. So it's not restricted to Chechen. Uh, Georgian, uh, of course, um, has had a very interesting relationship to the literatures of the North, North Caucasus, uh, given that it has a Christian tradition. But I, I've looked at many, many, many Georgian writers, both in my this book and in general, who um, take it as a kind of uh, point of pride that they can identify with their Muslim neighbors. So a, a, one, one of the chapters is about the modernist poet Titsan Tabidze, who kind of figures himself as an Islamic warrior. Um, and so this is very much, I mean, it, it is I, I, basically a study by a scholar of literature who's interested in the way that literature, literary texts refashion reality. Uh, but then again, I think that these literary refashionings actually change reality as well subsequently. So that's very interesting. And I think that's a good point for us to stop and talk a little bit about the methods. So you mm. bring up um, literary anthropology as um, your working, say, like framework. Um, so what is literary anthropology? How is it different from literature studies and how is it different from anthropology? Great question. Um, well, I think, I think one way to, to begin by answering that question is that I do think that, that, that the kind of method in which I found myself pursuing over the course of the research for this book is very much a product of, of the world in which I was working. So say, um, I think the Caucasus itself lends itself to a kind of literary anthropology, perhaps because many of the literary traditions of the Caucasus um, are, uh, begin as oral traditions. And then during the Soviet period, they acquire literary form. So, um, so that, 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 that literary anthropology, in my view, is a kind of methodology that's, that's very suited to the Caucasus. Also, I mean, those, those um, scholars who are specialists of the Caucasus will know that um, it's interesting that the, the, the field itself of Caucasus studies tends to be um, uh, mostly um, shaped by anthropologists and historians to some extent. I'm not aware of many scholars of literature. So, so that, um, so bringing a literary perspective to what is normally rendered in an anthropological context is, I think, part of my contribution. Um, as to what it is, it's, it's. I, I guess I, I see it's, it's more of a kind of recognition of the affinities between the two methods. I, I actually, when I finished. The initial phase of research, I began a PhD program uh, in anthropology, and then I s suddenly realized it took me about a year to realize that's not where I belonged. But um, it made sense at the time, and and I think I think because yes, I mean the, there's an affinity um, in my view as if in, between the way I understand literature um, or literary studies, um, literary the methods that are closest to me and the anthropological method, um, in the sense that it's it's one that's open to um, contradictions and ruptures and discontinuities in a way that other types of disciplines that may look for kind of um, focus more on on final products and and, and are, are, are less open to so that that I think is methodologically what what um, draws me to the two disciplines um, so perhaps we could talk about uh, the central concept of your book, which is transgressive sanctity. Mm, thank you. And yes. You could, yeah, and you could uh, tell us how you came, you came up with this concept. What does it mean? And what kind of analytical insights it gave you into the study of the literature of the Caucasus? Great. Good question. Um, so... Transgressive sanctity, again, it comes from my engagement with this figure of the, the abrek, um, and trying to understand the the transformation that took place in from in moving into the colonial period as well as into the Soviet or late late Tsarist period, um, you know why a figure of derision became a figure to be celebrated, um, and 
clearly um, this is very much to do with the uh, transformation in, in legal norms that colonial rule introduced. Um, because the, when in pre-colonial times, when the Abrek violated social norms, normally it was by raiding, conducting a raid at a neighboring village. Um, and sometimes, you know, it was seen as being potentially with a good reason to give to give food to his own villagers or something like that. But it was not condoned. It was condemned um, because it was a violation of, of legitimate laws and just laws. Right. This is seen as the glue that holds society together. And they were, in a sense, communally agreed on. So the violation of those laws was an antisocial act that was not celebrated. Um, but then with it, you have a new I think I would say kind of a radically new system of governance um, enters the Caucasus, um, well, different parts of the Caucasus at different times, um, but at the North Caucasus relatively late. It's particularly, I'm thinking of Chechnya and Dagestan in particular, which is where I'm mostly focusing my research. Um, I would say the, the kind of transformation I'm talking about occurred maybe in the late, so the 18, 1850s and 60s, but particularly after the conquest of Imam Shamil, uh, sorry, after, after the surrender of Imam Shamil. Um, that is a kind of watershed for, in terms of my book. I mean, that's when the story begins. Uh, because prior to that, um, in 18, um, 1859, prior to that, there was a sense of Russian rule, at least within Dagestan, within the, the stronghold of the imamate, um, Dagestan and Chechnya. Russian rule has been somewhat external and somewhat um, at a distance, right? And then suddenly you have a conquest, at which point it's no longer possible to just keep Russia, Russian legal norms at, at a distance. And and this this was clearly perceived uh, by the peoples inhabiting these regions as, as an unjust imposition of a legal code that they did not play a role in creating or participating in. So that is, a, is I think, in the kind of... Um, legal anthropological perspective or, you know, from many different angles that something radically new entered the sort of ethical systems at that point, because that there, I don't think there was really a prior example of any kind of form of governance that, that so radically and so rapidly transformed local relations as, as what happened after the surrender of Imam Shamil. Um, and these were laws again, that were, that were, I mean, I talk about it in my book as the kind of um, tensions between Zakon, the Russian colonial law, Sharia and Adat. So that, so there was already a kind of two different forms of kind of legal pluralism at, at, at work in the Caucasus before Russian rule, Adat being customary law um, that, that was, had a sort of ambivalent relationship to Sharia, but, but with, with the introduction of Zakon, that, that, necessitated a new kind of relationship to um, legal norms uh, because suddenly it, the legal norms did not come from within. It came from an external force. And so this is, so transgressive sanctity, I think begins with this moment. It begins with the moment when um, suddenly the violation of legal norms um, can become, can confer sanctity on the person who violates those norms. And that's exactly what you see happening with the abrek. Um, you see, um, uh, again, in folkloric sources, this is very much, it, it, it very much historically follows immediately after Shamil's surrender, um, because not everyone agreed that, that Imam Shamil, um, and that was his choice, and some people felt that it was the right thing to do, uh, because he was beleaguered by the Russian army, and obviously, you know, the, the Dagestanis were not going to achieve a victory, there was no other path. But there were many also who believed, and in, in, in terms of how this is remembered in Chechen history, the Chechens always say that they were the ones who, uh, in contrast to the Dagestanis, they were the ones who um, were opposed to ever surrendering, 
right? And so, so they did not support um, ultimately the kind of any form of reconciliation with Russian rule. Um, and so, what happened after Imam Shamil's surrender is that you see this um, resurgence of uh, banditry, abrechtstva. Uh, many, many, many new types of abreks are recorded in various ballads called ili. Uh, that's a Chechen term for a ballad, um, and there's just more uh, historical evidence for it. And so suddenly the violation of, of these um, norms are in a sense that that's, that's the path to sanctity. Whereas under the imamate of, of Imam Shamil, when, when there, this was a community that was ruled by um, Islamic law, um, obe- obeying, you know, wor- working within that system was the path to sanctity. There was a kind of a rule of law. And to be a good Muslim, you had to obey those laws. But once Imam Shamil surrendered and there was no rule of law coming from within, then to, in this, I mean, for a certain strand of thought to be a good Muslim meant violating those laws. So, so transgressive sanctity, that, I mean, that's where sanctity comes into the, into play. Um, it is, it is attaining, attaining sanctity through the act of transgression. And I, I hope, I mean, I didn't, I'm not too explicit about this, but, um, although I, I don't think I ever would have, you know, kind of reached this argument without the specifically what I learned from reading, reading the literatures of the Caucasus and, and looking at the histories and, 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 and so forth. Um, I do think it, it applies to other other contexts, and other, specifically other colonial contexts um, in Algeria, for example, um, anti-colonial resistance, uh, which also they had their own um, uh, imams, their own sort of war against colonial rule, and there too you have um, the emergence of a certain kind of banditry that's that's sanctified. So it's not it's not restricted to the Caucasus. I began to see it in other places as well uh, when I would sort of compare. But um, but I do think it's most in, in the way that I've described it, it's most fully realized in, in, the, in the Caucasus. And I would say specifically in connection with um, Chechen history and Chechen cultural memory. So something I find particularly fascinating that all these things you say is the idea of the plurality of legal systems. And uh, how right. about we stop a little bit and talk about uh, Ada, Charia, and uh, the Zakon, Russian law, and what are the mm-hmm. differences between them, and also how this translated into everyday experiences of people living in the Caucasus? Sure. Um, and of course, yeah, d- different different answers for different uh, time periods. But um, Adat is really the, it's very interesting. It's, it's, it's the kind of, it's, it's, you might say it's an Islamic reconstruction of pre-Islamic law. Um, so the term itself is Arabic, but it, it's used to describe what existed before Islam. Um, the legal systems that existed before Islam. And of course, the Islamization of the Caucasus happened at, at a very different um according to a very different time scale for, for each of the, the uh, literatures I look at. Um, in Dagestan, there, um, there was Islamic, Islamic culture. Um, mo- mo- most Dagestanis considered themselves Muslims um, as early as maybe the, the 9th or 10th century. Um, Chechnya, very interestingly, because it's a, it's a neighboring region, but again, this is just part of the, the diversity of the cultures. They, I don't, it wasn't so, so heavily Islamicized until maybe the 18th century. Um, so Adat, um, uh, it, although it, it, in a sense, when we speak of it today, we associate it with Islam because it's, it's, it's an Arabic term and it's, it's now kind of part of Islamic legal systems that actually pre- precedes Islam. So when I talk about the kinds of um, regulations that applied to the Abrek before colonial rule, I'm talking about a dot. I'm talking about these sort of local codexes that would um, uh, assign forms of punishment to people who who violated um, certain norms. 
um, and very, very much Adat is very much it's not it's not um, in contrast to Sharia. It doesn't it doesn't really aspire to any kind of um, sort of philosophical significance. It's more about sort of how daily daily contact, daily regulations, rules for everyday management of resources, um, family practices, so regulations around marriage, customs, and so forth. And in many in many ways. Um, Many, many actually Muslim reformers of Dagestan in particular were actually um, kind of campaigned against Adat um, in the 18th century. They saw it as this kind of um, uh, vestige of superstition and backwardness. Um, so, so Sharia, uh, you know, they're not really fully contrasting because in most contexts they coexist, but they refer to very different kind of spheres of of everyday life, right? Um, so Adat's very much about regulating daily daily practices and behavior. And again, it's pre-Islamic, but it was sort of incorporated into Islam. Um, Sharia um, is um, uh, referring to the path, right? It, it, it's kind of more, has more of a um, ethical dimension. So it's more, it, it, it's more easily, um, maybe more of an ideology driving it, right? The, um, oh, that's and, so interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then since Bidzakon is, is uh, yeah, a totally different um different uh, phenomenon entirely. And it's very interesting to reading through the, um, the uh, Barikats of Al-Karaki. That's the um, annals, the chronicles uh, from the, um, the life of Imam Shamil, the, when the, the campaigns that Imam Shamil conducted against um, uh, Russian, the czar. Um, the, these, these three different forms of legal, um, legal um, life are very much conceptualized. And so there is, there's discussion of Zakon, for example, transliterated into Arabic um, and in a sense of it as being this sort of problematic legal system. Um, so, yeah, so I think, I think that's, um, yeah, I mean, that, you have that, that needs to be a framework through which the kind of the complexities of basically what is right and what is wrong um, is adjudicated. It's never, it's never a straightforward thing. And it depends on who's asking the questions. And I think, you know, one, one of the, the limitations I felt to some extent with my, my undergraduate education and just with my immersion in the Russian canon was that these issues were always looked at from, from the perspective of Pushkin and Lermontov. And, and of course they, they identified at some level with, I mean, they, they recognized the injustice of it, but I, I think what, once you start looking at the world, at these the colonial incursions from taking these different legal systems into account, then it, it, it just becomes a bit more complex. So do I understand it correctly that, you know, one of the, say, broader goals of your book is also to bridge, um, say, the Russian or Eurasian studies and Middle Eastern studies? I would say yes. Um, of course, yeah, Middle Eastern is, 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 is a, sort of a modern term. But yes, I mean, that's the best we can do in terms of uh, ge- geographies. But yes, I think, um, I mean, I, I think it's, it's the first book that... Um, that brings these literatures together, and and which is really quite a quite a shame. I mean, given given how um, I mean, just how much Arabic literature um, Dagestan has produced, which is I mean, how many how, what, the diversity of genres, um, poetry, historiography, scientific text, and I I feel like I'm only kind of losing the tip of what what is there. Um, Actually, yeah. could you uh, talk a little bit more about that? Uh, so how widespread was writing in Arabic? What kind of texts, you know, are there available? And also, why were they writing in Arabic rather than, say, in Avar or Kumik? Sure. Um, well, again, it, it, yeah, it changes with the language that was used. It changes according to the, the century and so forth. But um, 
Arabic was definitely, well, I think one very clear reason why Arabic was the, the language of choice for most scholars of Dagestan. And interestingly, not, not only under the 19th century, but basically until you could say the 18th, sorry, 1930s under Soviet rule, um, because it was a way of communicating. I mean, same reason that, that, that Dagestanis speak Russian to each other, right? Uh, Navar and Akumik are not going, are unlikely that they'll be speaking in Navar. It, it was a lingua franca that, and that, that not just in, um, united them as a group, but that connected them to the broader Islamic world. Um, and so a lot of the texts, um, uh, uh, manuscripts from Egypt, writers from Egypt were, were in communication. Um, so the, some of the major uh, Islamic reformists uh, from Al-Azhar, the um, Islamic University in Cairo, uh, were in close communication with Muslim reformers in Dagestan, precisely because Arabic was their chosen medium. Um, so I, th- I think that's, you know, it, it makes sense. Um, uh, what's, what's interesting is just how well, I mean, how um, the level of, of accomplishment, attainment in Arabic in Dagestan and that, I mean, I don't, yeah, I think that that's actually kind of exceeds, exceeds explanation. It really is a kind of miracle. I mean, the um, tens of thousands of Arabic manuscripts that are found in mosques and so on is really a, a case unto itself. Um, as far as, um, yeah, I mean, and I think another thing worth, worth emphasizing is, is just the diversity of genres. It wasn't just religious um, materials. Um, poetic production was very, very much um, uh, very popular, uh, different different types of genres, different ty- um, um, collections, tabakat, or, or, um, which is a major source of, of information um, or sort of a resource for me to, to engage with. Uh, biographies of different scholars. Uh, was a, every, every sort of Muslim scholar would produce their own um, chronology, their own history of, of their teachers. So that, that's a very important genre. Um, and also, and it wasn't just Arabic. So Arabic was definitely, especially in Dagestan, it was by far the, the most important um, literature. Um, but in, in, it's also an, another kind of paradox of this region, which is in some the Caucasus or the North Caucasus. Um, although there is so much in common, like for example the Abrek, which is not just confined to the, the eastern um, or northeastern Caucasus, it's also very much um, evident in Circassian literatures as well. Uh, they all have their own uh, version of the Abrek. Um, but but the kind of fluorescence of Arabic um, literature is. As I see it, it's, it is pretty much a Dagestani phenomenon. So Chechens, for example, did write much more in Chechen and much less in Arabic. And that that is largely probably or at least partly because um, um, the written tradition itself was more developed in, in Dagestan. Um, so a lot of Chechen literature is oral literature. Um, and also, it is not, but it's not just Arabic. Um, in the south, in, in, in Derbent, um, Persian was... Uh, probably at least as popular that they were on the border with with Azerbaijan, so um, Persian and, and Azeri as well. Um, and one of the writers who I um, is very important source um, in general for me, and in who I, I engage with um, in my book, um, Hassan Al Al Khadari, uh, wrote uh, major works in all three languages: um, Persian, Arabic, and Azar Azeri. Um, and so, yeah, the, the, that was that was pretty typical of of the of the time. Um, but um, but yeah. So, so yeah, the, the, it takes, it, it takes quite, quite a, a mental energy to just put it, put it all into one place. But I really do think, I hope that my book makes a case for seeing these literatures in relationship to each other, notwithstanding their very significant differences. Oh, it definitely um, yeah. does. 
Yeah. And, you know, with every little detail which adds to our conversation, there's just picture of this cultural and linguistic diversity and complexity of the material is just right. absolutely growing. Well, how about we dive into the book? Um, so mm -hmm. we already talked about the methods and your conceptual framework, transgressive mm -hmm. sanctity, which is um, what was largely the um, content of the introduction. So how about right. you talk your first chapter, the abject okay. in Soviet Chechen literature. So yes. what, what is it about? So uh, the main focus there is um, a novel. Well, there's two two novels um, that are the focus. Um, one is by, um, and I think you see the kind of cross-cultural dimensions you were talking about, actually by an Ossetian writer um, uh, named um, uh, Zaho Gatuyev, or um, he was sometimes called himself Konstantin Gatuyev, um, who published a, in the um, 1920s, uh, published a biography of Zelimhan, Um, and that was, that was building, drawing on primarily, um, journalistic sources. Um, it was about 10, 10 years after the assassination of Zelim Han, the most famous Abrek. Um, and so the fact of, of his undertaking to, um, again, this is someone from, from coming from a very different, uh, a neighboring people, but not someone who, you know, had no particular reason to, to glorify, a Chechen resistance fighter or a Chechen bandit. Uh, but he undertook this as his, as his subject. Um, it was uh, kind of the task he set himself. Um, and in addition to that, to engaging with that novel, um, uh, calling it a novel is a bit, it is a novel, but it's a novel that's very kind of self-consciously um, journalistic and that it, it literally cites from journalistic reporting and includes um, historical, like, images in the text itself so clearly he's and he was a journalist himself as well so i think in terms of his genre it has a kind of unique status um in addition to that there is a um, manuscript unpublished in a dagestani archive that i found um in 2006 um where he he has his travel notes uh traveling through chechnya in the 1920s it's fascinating to read it um and and just interviewing local people about The Abrek, the figure of the about Zelim Han primarily, again, who is the most famous Abrek, but he, but he, he signifies something more than just this one person, right? And so he, yeah, basically did what I did, except in the 1920s. Um, so he's a yeah, very big inspiration for me. I think he's a really great writer, um, and his unfortunately he was assassinated um, in a very kind of obscure circumstances. Yeah, I hope the, the parallelism between his and your stories ends here. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Yes, I don't think that. Hopefully, that won't happen to me. But um, yes, uh, he was one of the major, the victims of the purges, as probably a, a good proportion of the writers that I look at were um, from different cultures. So that's that's the, the kind of, this this is a text that launched, although it, it was, as I said, it was, it's building on already an exist, pre-existing kind of um, ethnographic traditions about banditry um, that, that he gathered from his own field work. It's building on folklore. It's building on journalistic reportage. But in a sense, this is the book that launched the, the Soviet phenomenon of the Abrek um, in the 1920s. And um, it's, it, in terms of kind of from a literary perspective, it's also very interesting in that it's, um, 
its style is sort of experimental. He actually puts, um, he has these pads, like particularly when he narrates the death of the Ebrek, which is a very um, sort of paradigmatic moment. Um, I, I sent in a kind of, um, it parallels the, the surrender of Imam Shamil. This is like a, a watershed moment when the, the, the famous glorified Delim Han is killed by the czarist army. Uh, because when this is narrated, it's always um, shown that Delim Han had this kind of immortal capacity that it was almost impossible to kill him. And because he had this kind of um, lifeline to the divine, I mean, really, that's what I meant as transgressive sanctity. He had special, special um, immortal qualities. And so um, uh, Gatulia, that, that, that's already, you can already see that in folkloric text, and you can see that as well in, in, in journalistic reporting from, of, of his assassination. Um, but then Gatulia takes it to another level because he's writing, in a sense, he's writing fiction, but kind of historical or documentary fiction, as he calls it. Um, and and in, when narrating that death scene, um, he puts these Arabic, uh, strangely, you find like transliterated Cyrillic Arabic words inserted with Zalim Han um, reciting the, 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 the Quran as he, as he dies. Um, and again, that, that's, that's sort of, it's like an embellished, you would say, a fictionalization or an aestheticization of, of the historical event. And so I think it's just a very interesting text from a literary perspective and very interesting to see a kind of tradition being created, but on the basis of an already pre-existing tradition. Um, and then um, in the um, uh, 1960s, um, this of course, the, 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 the theme is repeated in various texts, but I think the very, very second major contribution to this literature, the, the Cheshire Bandit, is in 1860, sorry, 1960s with Magomed Mamakayev, who is probably, I would say, the greatest Chechen writer, and really, very unfortunately, is just, doesn't doesn't really have any, any recognition at this point, even within the field of, say, Eurasian studies. I hope he will, uh, maybe through my book, partly. But um, he produced a really amazing biography of Zalim Han that clearly is engaged with um, Gatulyev's novel, but it, it's, it's kind of much more philosophical, much more a psychological portrait. And it really, it, 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 I think the ethical, the ethical um, ambiguity of violence is really the central question of this work. And so Magomed Mamakayev, he was, although he was Chechen, of course, he's, he's more ambivalent towards militant violence. Um, and he, he portrays the effects of Zelim Han's choices to kind of make himself into basically a criminal, an enemy of the state. He portrays the effects of that on his own, Zelim Han's own immediate family. And so portrays um, sort of some, some of his family members discouraging him from pursuing the path of violence and others taking it. It's, it's really, it's a portrait of a very compelling individual. It's a very hum, humanizing portrait. And so I think as a kind of Bildungsroman, it's, it's, a, it's just a great work. Um, and uh, so it's basically an analysis of those, of those two novels and uh, also some later, later um, even um, sources from the, um, uh, the 1990s uh, and even in the 70s as well, because again, this isn't this isn't just like a one decade thing. That the theme comes up occurs again and again and again, and you find it as a constant reference point um, during the Chechen Wars as well. Um, so that's so it's just looking at the trajectory of of um, this figure of the Abrak over the course of Chechen history. Well, great. So um, how about the second chapter, which is called Regulating Rebellion? Miracles, Insurgency, and Dagestani Modernity. How does the theme of Abrek continue in that chapter? So there it sort of broadens out into the question, the issue of 
violence and anti-colonial violence in general, and specifically the more sort of familiar Islamic concept of jihad, um, uh, because as I kind of signaled towards earlier, the um, the Dagestani types of engagements uh, with with well any kind of major philosophical questions. Uh, there, I mean, there, there are much the Dagestani culture is much more deeply rooted in Arabic traditions and Islamic traditions as well. So it's um, it, it, it takes a more kind of classical Islamic form of engaging with with the problem of violence. And so I'm looking at um, historical chronicles um, that narrate the choice um, uh, made uh, in, in the, um, under Shamil's Imam age, or just, just before then, the choice to engage in jihad against, against, um, the Russian, Russian, um, empire. Um, it, it's taken as a kind of, I mean, there's a, a philosophical genealogy to the question of, you know, when, when is it just, when is it not just to engage in this kind of violence? So that's, that's a point of departure. There are chronicles that, that narrate this choice and narrate it from the perspective of Islamic law. Um, and then, um, then I look at how, um, later after the surrender of Imam Shamil, um, how, uh, late, later, um, Dagestani sources, uh, in a sense came closer to the Chechen approach to, um, to violence, which was more of a kind of desperate, um, you, you know, um, the abrek is someone who basically doesn't think of consequences. In fact, that, that, that's, a, that's a phrase that is used, um, that there's, there's a kind of dignity. Um, after, again, after, after defeat, basically, there was a, a kind of emergent literature um, that would say, well, you know, we're destined for annihilation, so all we can do is just resist to our deaths. And this, I think you can, you can, do, I mean, research in, in terms of these various texts shows that that is coming more from uh, Chechen material, but it's taken over later by Dagestanis after Shamil sort of abandons the scene. And so it's sort of looking at the influence of um, uh, Chechen, Chechen culture on uh, Dagestani uh, modernity. Great. Well, and your next chapter is dedicated to Georgia. It is called mm-hmm. The Georgian Poetic of Insurgency, Redeeming Treachery. And an outsider might think that Georgia would be a part of this narrative to a v- in a very different sense than Chechnya and Dagestan. But then in, in your work, you reveal that there are actually much more hidden connections, one wouldn't think. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. And I think, I think again, that maybe you, one could say that this is, this is a contribution that literary studies can offer. Because of course, if you're going to be very, very, um, uh, if you're going to just take basically historical context as the primary determinant of, of what's relevant and how you're going to organize your research, it wouldn't really make sense to go back and forth between Chechens and Dagestanis because of course they're, they're responding to radically different realities. But at the same time as they're responding to radically different realities, the poets themselves reached out um, to their neighboring peoples and kind of constructed common narratives, even even sometimes or precisely because um, they felt a lack of actual solidarity on the ground. Right. So I'm not so Georgians were not fighting side by side with Dagestani. To the contrary, um, as as many scholars of, of the Caucasus know, Georgians played a leading role in the conquest of the Caucasus. Uh, so, so that that would be the historical approach, right? To just kind of narrate those those chronologies. And I take a different approach because yeah, I'm interested. And literature yeah. does undermine the historical approach, right? And I think to some extent, or at least it it, it offers a, a necessary uh, corrective. Absolutely. 
Um, and so the, the Georgian poets that I'm that I'm looking at um, were very troubled by the Georgian legacy of complicity. I mean, that's what they called it um, with Russian rule and kind of unquestioning allegiance um, to the czar. And really, basically, you know, Georgian, they were very troubled by the tendency of many of their ancestors to kind of put, put their own nation first and to ignore the implications of that for the peoples of Dagestan and Chechnya. And so the particular poet who's the the uh, focus of that chapter is Titian Tabidze, someone who I've worked on a lot. And I um, just another unsung hero of, of literary history, really a, absolutely brilliant poet. Um, and I've tra- a lot of his translations are, are now available in, outside the book as well. I've published them in various places. Um, um, and so he um, there are many, many important um, poems that he's produced. But for, to my mind, one of his most courageous is um, what, what might be called uh, the Shamil Cycle. So it's a series of poems that he wrote about Imam Shamil, um, the um, Avar warrior of Dagestan, who was a symbol of resistance to Russian rule for many peoples of the Caucasus. Um, and these are all very interesting poems. Um, but to my mind, the most interesting one is called Gunibi. Um, perhaps I could now I could try to recite a little bit of it uh, just yes, so people can read the Georgian. Um, yeah, go ahead. Because it's really, I remember when I was sitting in Tbilisi and I just, I came across this poem and, you know, my Georgian was, it wasn't fluent, but it was good enough that I could kind of get a sense of the, what was good and what wasn't basically in poetry. And I just remember being absolutely blown away by seeing this written on the page. Um, so, Gadavire Dagestane Vnache Gunibi, Giawuri Var, Davar Mainz Ekla, Muridi. Um, so, um, some of those words are, are recognizable to not speak, those who don't speak Georgian, like giaur and murid. Murid is an Arabic term um, used to describe um, followers of Imam Shamil. Um, it uh, has, and originally has a kind of Sufi connotation, so it's someone who follows their Sufi master. But in the context of the, the Caucasus Wars, a murid was, was a follower of Imam Shamil, so basically um, someone who engaged in this, this jihad against Russian rule. Um, and giaur is the Turkic word for infidel, right? So the poet is saying, um, uh, uh, I entered Dagestan, um, I crossed into Gunib, I am a giaur. He, he says, I am a giaur, I am an infidel. And now I am a murid. Um, these are very, very powerful lines, yeah, right? Fantastic. Because, Absolutely. Yeah. Think of all the different perspectives that he's channeling into those that those two lines. I mean, all the different, basically conflicting narratives, the, all the histories that are condensed into that small number of words. I mean, I think it's really great poetry. And and so yeah, so that I yeah, I read that and I'm like, okay, this is this is this is definitely changing my perspective on things. And and that's and, and, and he goes on to basically um, describe imagine himself. Uh, this is again a Georgian poet writing. Um, he was actually assassinated the same year as as Zako Gatuyev. Uh, they didn't know each other, but you know shared that common fate because they were both seen as kind of dangerous subjects under Stalinist rule. Um, and um, he is imagining himself as a warrior under Imam Shumil against Russian rule. Oh, and I should mention that right at the time when he produced this poem, he was translating Haji Murat, Tolstoy's Haji Murat. So, and that's that is, a whole network of connections around it, right? 
Exactly, exactly. Which is a very famous um, uh, text uh, about about um, the resistance to Russian rule um, by by uh, Tolstoy, um, and it's one of. I think it does stand apart from, say, the other texts of the Russian canon that engage with the Caucasus, um, in that it really Tolstoy really went out of his way to understand the uh, the local perspective and this Chechen perspective as well. He studied Chechen. Um, you know, he he took it very, very seriously. And, and, I, and he, that, that's a bit different from, from his um, predecessors in, in of Russian literature. And, and that was, but importantly for my book, that was recognized by Georgians and Dagestanis and Chechens. And, and so they, therefore, this is, a, this is a literary text that has entered local histories um, in a way that I think Kafkaski planning, for example, Pushkin really hasn't. It hasn't been as interesting to peoples of the Caucasus. Um, so yes, so so Titsian Tibidze was translating this text. He wrote some essays about Tolstoy as well, um, and then he he produced his own cycle of poems about um, imagining himself as a warrior um, under Imam Shamil. And I also, just as much as I love those first two lines, I love the the last uh, two lines. Let's see if I can remember it. Meitzer um, poems from. So he's gone through, um, and I'll translate that in a second. He's gone through basically in this poem, um, seeing himself on a mountaintop, right? Oguni, I should have mentioned, that's the name of the poem itself. Um, it is, that is the site of Imam Shamil's surrender um, in 1859. So it's a hugely significant uh, moment in the history of the Caucasus. And so he's, Imam Shamil, uh, sorry, Titian Tabizi imagines himself as part of this community, basically fighting to the end. And then he starts, um, he has this one line where he returns to his his Georgian brother, brothers. That's what he says, uh, Zmebo, Chemo uh, Zmebo, my, my brothers. Um, and, uh, and, and talks about how they were on the front lines of the war against the Dagestanis. And in fact, specifically, anyone who knows Georgian literary history knows that he's, he's specifically referring to some of Georgia's major, major um, uh, uh, poets, such as Grigol Orbeliani, who served as, a, as an officer in the Russian army. So it's a very, I mean, it's a very hard hitting poem with very, very specific references, although he doesn't name them, but you don't need, he doesn't need to name them. So it basically has this kind of litany where he's um, uh, indicting his, as he calls them Georgian brothers, but you know from the context that it's, it's really, he's indicting them with complicity. And that last line, made said poems, I write poetry. Um, so to redeem your treachery. Uh, I think it's a great line and it's a great justification of poetry. I mean, after all, like what better reason <laughs> is there to be a poet than, than to redeem treachery? Um, so that, that's again, it's, it's one of those kind of, foundational text for, I think, for my argument. Um, there too, you know, you see it's, it's a very different kind of sanctification of violence, but, but it's definitely taking place. I mean, it's a sense of, you know, he's not troubled by the, um, by the jihad itself. You know, he's, he's troubled by the, um, the conquest of, of the Caucasus. And um, so there is, I think, a certain kind of asceticization of violence, certainly. And it's, it's a, but it's, it's a literary asceticization. Maybe that's worth saying. Uh, you know, these, all of these writers who are glorifying anti-colonial resistance were actually in actual practice, not going around killing people, uh, but they were, they were trying to place that history in perspective and, um, and using literature to do that. So, um, yeah, and it was very, it was actually, I mean, in, in a very literal sense, it was very, very courageous of Tizian to write these poems. Um, and I was very privileged when I was living in Georgia to get to know his daughter, 
and his granddaughter wow. as well. I paid a visit um, in 2000, a very, actually kind of sadly, I paid a visit in 2005 and then 2006. And then when I came back in 2014, his daughter had died. Um, so, um, but, but at least I got to know, I got to know her, um, for some periods and I, I have actually, there's an interview that's, that's available, um, publicly in, um, uh, the, the, uh, journal Guernica, um, an interview with his daughter. Uh, but what's, what I learned very importantly from that, um, that interview is that, um, at the time when he was arrested um, and he was accused of, base, of being, ironically, of being a spy, Tatiana Bide was accused of being a, a spy for America. That was the, the reason for his execution. Yeah, um, very ironic. Indeed. <laughs> of course, he never been there. But he was writing a novel about Imam Shamil. And that, of course... I mean, it's presumably disappeared from the oh, world. So we don't have the unfinished manuscript? No, no. Oh, his daughter did not have any access. Yeah, but he told his daughter that he was writing it. And so he was clearly very, very interested in this in this topic and its theme. And the poem was not published during his lifetime. Um, and it was also not translated. A lot of Tizian's poetry actually is translated very well into Russian, by Boris Pasternak, um, he was very lucky to have a lot of very important friends, Tsitsian Tabidze. Uh, um, so, so, but but that that poem itself was not the Guni poem was a bit too uh, dangerous, I think. Um, even yeah, even for the 1960s. So, so anyway, so so that and then and of course I, I integrate these stories into my um, my narrative, um, which is part of the sort of anthropological aspect of the of the um, literary history that I I tell. Uh, but yeah, so that, that's what the chapter is primarily about, Tiziana Tabidze, but it's also about uh, other, so uh, I'm also just trying to think through these these, these forms, these, these networks of solidarity, you could say, that were created by um, Soviet writers um, by using these various tropes um, and, and, and to kind of help them collectively um, overcome the damage that had been wrought by their governments, right? Because they were very conscious of having, as, as writers, having a different sense of justice and a different sense of accountability than, um, than governments. And I think you see that with Tatiana Tabidze, you see that with Jacko Gatuyev as well. Um, it's, it's, a, it's just a common theme. Well, so now we have the Chechen, the Dagenistani, and the Georgian yes. chapters. Right. And then you come to synthesize them all in chapter four, which is called Violence is Recognition, Recognition is Violence. So what happens in this chapter? Right. Uh, so this is a departure methodologically. Um, it isn't concerned with any specific literary text. It is an attempt to come to terms with my own encounters with violence in the Caucasus um, uh, when I was living there and traveling through the region. Um, and so the kind of point of departure is with a time when I was in Nalchik, um, living among Chechen refugees. And um, I was a guest and uh, I was sort of being, of course, told these stories of resistance. And one of the Chechen um, women um, reached into her purse and she took out a photograph of um, a woman named Aizan Gatuyeva, who was one of the first uh, suicide bombers. Um, an Urus Martan, uh, and she blew herself up, as well as um, a, I guess, Dagestani official, uh, following the uh, murder of her uh, her her husband. And uh, and so, what was interesting to me is that this the, this woman Aizan Gazuyeva was remembered in very um, uh, heroic terms by by the the Chechen 
um, by such an interlocutor. And in fact, I was asked uh, after the story of her story was told, I was asked if I could um, basically distribute her photograph uh, when I returned to America, if I could show it to CBS and um, put it on the television screen. So basically everyone would know the, the suffering of the Chechen people. Um, you know, and I'm not really sure that that would have had the intended effect <laughs> that it yes, did. I, I don't quite <laughs> agree with you on this one. <laughs> But just that that was the perception that it would, I think, does suggest a kind of continuity um, in, in terms of the, the, the sanctification of transgression. Right. And then the, the kind of paradox of what do you do? How do you how do you even take any positive step in a context where your rights are being violated on all sides? I think that's that's a, a common context within which transgressive sanctity emerges. So it seemed to me that it, it isn't just a phenomenon that's, that's that's limited to literature. Now, I recognize, of course, I mean, there may be a methodological um, issues with with moving back and forth so much between literary text and um, ethnographic experience, but I, I it's very clear to me that that those my interlocutors were themselves familiar with with the literary traditions and the folkloric traditions, so they were themselves responding to that representational reality that I had described in the previous chapters. Um, so yeah, so it's just just an attempt to really think through. Um, I think what a genuine. Um, uh, glorification of um, of Shahidki of, of suicide bombers um, that that definitely you know certainly existed um, at the time when I was I was conducting field work um, among Chechen refugees and uh, again I don't I, you know it's not I don't have any answers or any any um, I think I think it's really dangerous to try to kind of um, diagnose these these issues or you know psychologize at all. Um, but just, just, I just, 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 it's an attempt at, yeah, just, just, uh, documenting the conversations I had and, um, placing it within that, within that larger trajectory. And also as well, it's, it's the only chapter I should mention that's really seriously engaged with, uh, women's experiences, uh, because, because the tradition of banditry is very much a male dominated experience. Well, one question which arises from uh, what we are talking about is, of course, the uh, ethical stance of the researcher uh, who is um, dealing with violence and, you know, uh, the necessity of taking some position or not taking any position at all and trying to remain as neutral and as objective as possible. So what is what's your take on this? I think this occurs to me that this is perhaps something where both anthropology and literature have, again, a kind of shared affinity um, in, I would see it at least in contrast to a more traditional um, historic, historical methodology, whereas, you know, even, of course, there are many historians who, who very firmly believe in not taking, not taking, um, uh, you know, and also being sort of, um, not, not, not make, passing judgment. Um, I think methodologically, because his, historians are methodologically kind of compelled to look from the outside, right, and to 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 get a contextual overview of a situation and use use contextual details to reconstruct a situation. The kind of imperative to to to, to pass judgment is a bit is, is heavier um, than someone who works um, as an ethnographer or as a scholar of literature, in which, um, at least I feel my own position as a researcher, is, is is to observe and to record and to be particularly attentive to contradictions. And that's it. Like, I want to document as many contradictions and ironies and discontinuities as possible. Um, and th- th- I think that that's a kind of step towards arriving at some kind of um, maybe resolution, but I don't, I don't make that resolution myself. 
I think it's, you know, thinking things through um, from a kind of, um, uh, I would hope at least this may sound a bit, a bit ambitious or a kind of an indigenous perspective or in a local perspective and looking at the contradiction contradictory celebration of violence as well as its condemnation in other contexts um that that's that's my methodological stance and and i think if i had been thinking as a historian i would have been a bit more uh pressured to maybe um step back and and look at kind of the ineffectiveness as i just pointed out to you now right that i you know i really don't think it would have helped to like distribute uh, this photograph to the world but that at a certain level like that's not so relevant for the, like my 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 objective historical you know perspective of, of it's not being useful is not does not really help get at the core of the story and so um yeah that that's how i saw i i see my my own position as um is 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 that as an observer and as someone who um, is is open to the the com- complete irresolvability, actually, unfortunately, of these conflicts. Well, this has been a really fascinating conversation, Rebecca, and thank you for being so generous with your time. So My before pleasure. we part, I just wanted to ask you about uh, your current um, research plans and you know what kind of projects you are working on. So what's what's coming next? Right. Uh, well, I have um, actually a very related project um, that I will be focused. I will be concentrating on um, for next academic year because I'll be on leave, and um, so I'm very lucky for that. And I, I hope hope to have it finished soon. It's called "Narrating Catastrophe: Forced Migration in the Caucasus from Colonialism to Postcoloniality." So it has it it, it brings together kind of a similar um, set of texts in the sense of Georgian Arabic. Uh, as well as some Chechen texts, but looks at the response to violence from a very different angle. Um, I'm not looking at militant resistance. I'm looking at the narration of catastrophe, particularly the narration of forced migration um, and how this was remembered in in these three literatures, Um, primarily the forced migrations that took place following the surrender of Imam Shamil in the 1860s, as well as um, the 1944 deportations of other Chechens and other peoples of the Caucasus to Kazakhstan. Um, And what, just just as with the first project, um, and I think because I kind of think as a scholar of literature, I was really interested interested by the rhetorical repetition of this this bandit figure. Um, And that's what made sense for me to put all these texts together. So too, with this project, um, what interests me is not only kind of the, the documentation of specific historical events, but the fact that in the literary text I'm looking at, these events are remembered and associated and compared to a very paradigmatic event in Islamic history that long predates um, anything, any of this colonial rule, which is the Hijra of Muhammad um, from Mecca to Medina. This is the inaugural, it's, it's, it's the beginning of the Islamic calendar, um, the inaugural migration that is seen to, in a sense, mark the beginnings of Islam itself. Um, and it is a migration significantly that, as reported in the Quran and as well as in various lives of the Prophet, um, that was t- it, a forced migration that was taken under duress because Muhammad felt that he was under threat of persecution by his neighboring tribesmen, the Quraysh, and he had to go to Medina. But when he arrived at Medina, he was greeted with, with his followers on a, on a horse, so as a kind of sign of victory. He was greeted with open arms 
And he was given the, the free space for the first time to really create a community where Muslims could openly practice Islam. And um, this is a paradigmatic moment in Islamic history. It's remembered again and again and again um, at various periods of forced migration, um, all the way from, say, Al-Andalus, when Muslims were expelled from Al-Andalus during the Reconquista of 1492. Um, that is also called the Hijra. Um, and, and, uh, but most particularly for the purposes of my, this project, um, under colonial rule, um, when um, following the conquest of Imam, the, the, uh, 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 the surrender of Imam Shamil, um, many Chechens in particular um, and some Dagestanis were told they had to leave to Ottoman lands. That is also a hijra. Um, and that's how it's recollected in, in, in local literatures and sources. And even in, in Georgian text, too, there's a Georgian word for this. Uh, the muhajir is a migrant and muhajirba is a Georgian term. So there's, again, like a kind of proliferation of text around forced migration um, that bears some kind of relation, and sometimes it's a bit distant and mediated, but some kind of relationship to this founding um, narrative of Islam. And even up until the 1944 deportation, which is a really sort of watershed tragedy for the Chechens and for many peoples of the Caucasus, uh, when uh, a third of these peoples died on their way to Central Asia, uh, this has also been narrated as, as, as a hijra, as a forced migration. Um, and I'm very interested how in, during the Soviet period, many of the, the um, Chechens and, and Ingush who were forced to who were forced to migrate to Central Asia um, wrote um, their major historical novels about the 1860s forced migrations. Of course, they could not write about the 1944 deportations, but you see this kind of allegorization of Hitler taking place even there. So that's that's the overall um arc of the project. And I think it's, it's, it's just useful, uh, kind of a corrective to my first book in the sense, because I don't want to reify violence in the Caucasus. And that, that's already an existing stereotype. I don't want to suggest that that's the only uh, meaningful narrative that, that was generated. In fact, this is an equally salient narrative, these narratives of forced migration. Wow, that sounds absolutely fascinating. And I really wish you the best of luck with this project. I'll be looking thank forward you so much. to it. And thank you for being with us today. Thank you. It was a great pleasure. I really enjoyed this conversation with Rebecca Gold about her book, Writers and Rebels, The Literature of Insurgency in the Caucasus. And I hope that so did you. We have many more exciting speakers lined up for the forthcoming episodes of our podcast. So please stay tuned and keep listening to new books in Russian and Eurasian studies. Take care and goodbye.